This is Lachlan Rouston. This is Raf Friedman. And you're listening to the fittest podcast in Australia, The Mind Muscle Project. Project, welcome back to the show. Q&A today. Got a lot of new questions, new questioners. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for giving us your questions. As always, if you want to give us your questions, make sure you go to the Instagram and drop us a DM. All right, Connor, what's our first question? Number one, this comes from Ronan Git. Uh, what are some tips for balancing strength training and endurance training for an event? Uh, it's a half marathon. He's hoping to still build or maintain some strength whilst being able to perform adequately at the event. All right, so we've done this a few times, Raf. Why don't we kick it off? You go well, first. I guess that he's probably not a huge runner. Sounds like he's more like getting into it. I want to assume here for the half marathon. It's not like easy for you to do a half marathon, a marathon. Ah, man, I think trying to gain strength when doing something like this is challenging. It really depends on, are we talking about lower body strength, upper body strength? I think that when you're preparing for something like a half marathon, marathon, if you want to like keep training upper body, probably get stronger in the upper body, definitely can do it. And it's more around just like recovery, eating enough and still being fresh on your running days. My experience, I do think it's very difficult in the lower body definitely can probably maintain strength depending on like what maintaining is for you if you're high level then maybe not but if you're more like intermediate you, you probably can maintain as long as your weight is not going down but trying to build strength while doing a hard hard half marathon a marathon training program i think it's very difficult and i think it's like probably making it harder than it really needs to be and you probably just end up doing pretty bad at both because it is so different i think anyone that's got into running running with like really sore legs is pretty tough. I do think it probably exposes you to more injuries as well. If you just like obliterate your legs on days that does not fit into the running program you've got at all and the cycles of your running program at all as well. So I would probably focus more on your upper body if it's just more like, hey, I want to stay big and strong going into this running event. Yeah, man. The only thing I was going to add to this was just like, it's just legs. That's the only consideration. How hard are you training your legs? Just don't train your legs very hard and you'll be fine. Um, I think when I was doing the marathon training, my leg days were once a week and I think I had got it to at most split squats at 40 kilos. Like that was the heaviest part of my leg training during the year because ultimately you're trying to preserve that, the muscles in your legs. Like So you just need to put it on maintenance um, and rehab. So yeah, that's really the only consideration. And I trained my upper body hard like when mm. I was training for the marathon. So yeah, I think it's... I do think it also is important to keep strength training when you're training for yeah. a marathon. That's the critical piece. Don't let that drop off. Cool. Um, next question. Okay. Uh, this one comes from l.ukus.fisher. Uh, what are some principles for planning macro cycles? So really looking for months over years for overall fitness. Okay. So specifically, he wants long training cycles for fitness. Yeah. For like, yeah. He's programming. Yeah, well, I mean, a macro cycle is like, what, 12 to 16 weeks? Yeah. And a micro cycle is basically three to four weeks. So each macro cycle might have three to four micro cycles within it. Basically, a micro cycle is used to just change up the exercise variation and change up the split to make sure that, um, you know, whoever's doing it is still progressing and obviously still entertained by the program and still enjoying it. And a macro cycle is just how are they making progress over there? 16 weeks towards the goal and how they're making progress um, over the year. So for example, a macro cycle might be like, all right, cool, I'm starting this 16 week squat program. I wanna go from 140 to 160. That's the goal of the macro cycle is to make sure that you achieve that goal. The micro cycle is just like, all right, how do we switch up the leg exercises so we don't overload joints and get injured? So mm. um, in terms of planning it, yeah, I think the key is not to mix them up. 
don't mix up the need for a micro cycle and a macro cycle. Like a macro cycle, like I said, is considering the overall goal and the micro cycle is considering the minutia within the day-to-day training. Yeah, and I think just remembering there is a hierarchy of importance here. So like changing things between micro cycles, very much less importance than, than picking what you can do on a macro cycle. A lot of programs, you just keep the same program for you know, for the every week, for the four weeks in a row, and then there's small changes. But in the macro cycles, it's like, it, it is more important to actually be looking at how you're doing that. So the fact that you're actually going into that, most people don't have the patience to stick with macro cycles that goes for months and years. They kind of do a program for a couple of months, change to the next program. So I think you're definitely on the right track, actually committing to one like that. I will also say it's harder to find programs these days that actually do this. Cause I think so many, it's just easier to sell programs that are just like a bit more short-term gratification. Most programs out there don't go very long. So if you can actually stick to something here where you, you are looking like six, 12 months and there's progression between the macro cycles, yeah, you could get some sick results. Yeah, but when it relates to overall fitness, I'll just come back to um, for, for macro cycles. You need to be doing what most people miss when it comes to fitness training, especially if you've come from the gym world, is you just don't do enough aerobic training. So a lot of your fitness training in a macro cycle needs to be like that long, slow distance mm. stuff that goes north of 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes. So incorporating a lot of that into your conditioning training is important. It, sh- it should be like 80-20. So like 80% should just be long, slow distance, you know, just ticking over on a bike, ticking over on a run. Um, and 20% of it should be the high intensity threshold training. That's just like a really good principle to go with. Cool. Uh, next question. Cool. 4109 Fitness has asked, as a trainer, how do you encourage to eat healthier and consume enough protein? I presume encourage clients. Right. Yeah, this is tough, man. But um, it's doable. It's doable. It's just one of the hardest parts of being a coach is to get your clients to change their eating behaviors, especially because most people don't have a big appetite, I would say. Like they have, a, they have a decent appetite. They can obviously stomach it. But for the amount of protein that they need to eat, it's generally a lot more than what people have. Yeah. No one's eating too much protein, that's for sure. Well, people just like, I just find because of their habits, like they don't really have a taste for high protein foods. Like they an look, appetite? Yeah, like they look at, they, they have an appetite for non-protein foods sometimes. But it's like looking at a, the amount of protein they need to eat, like just how the plate now looks. They're like, oh, it seems like a lot, you know? It's a lot of chicken. Yeah, like that seems like a lot of chicken. I, I guess it's been so many years since they've done that. And to us, we look at it we're like, oh, it looks, that looks awesome. But to them, yeah, they, they don't have the appetite for like that specific macronutrient. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, um, so the one thing that you need to, when, when it comes to the psychology of training your clients to do these things is you need to enter the habit forming arena at the correct threshold for each client. So I've actually heard Jordan Peterson talk about this before. It relates to the locus of control, which is essentially where you need to Uh, find the starting point for every client, no matter how small it is, and understand that once they can achieve even the smallest starting point, the next, the progressive steps after that towards what you want them to do is actually uh, comes at an exponential rate. So you think, well, man, if I'm starting my client, I say, you know, have one scoop of protein in the mornings once a week on Monday, you're like, wow, that's pretty easy. We're a long way from 150 grams of protein a day. I don't know if they'll ever get there because, you know, 130 gram scoop in a whole week versus 150 a day, we're miles off. It's actually not true. You're actually quite close because it's exponential. So being able to cross that threshold of I haven't missed a Monday for a month to, okay, let's go for a Monday and a Tuesday. And then that can go from every day 
and then that can go from now adding lunch every day and it builds up really quickly mm. but the important thing is you have to bring it down all the way to the level that the client needs to start at so once you can find that starting point the this the research supports that they can get to whatever the end goal is much much quicker but most people don't bring it down low enough because if they think they bring it down too low it's just never going to mm. work in the long term yeah i think mean, the, the good thing about protein as well like because it doesn't really matter when you have it you can find the entry point for every single client and there's an entry point for every client to add 30 grams in. And then, you know, there's another entry point once they got that habit down to add it in another time of day. And once you've done that two or three times, like you've got a lot of clients to a much better place. Yeah, like you just need to make your clients feel successful. Yeah. And not feel like they're constantly failing. And that, that usually starts with like one meal in the day. Yeah. Usually an entry point is something like that. Like it's one well, shake, one part of one meal. One meal, one change they make that like puts them on the right track. And also if you've ever dealt with someone that has eaten like chronically low amounts of protein, they do see benefits pretty quickly when they increase their protein. They're like, oh wow, this is a lot better. Like um, even small things like their skin and nails can get better. Obviously their recovery and muscle gain can get a lot better. So like pretty quickly they get the buy-in, you know? And then it becomes easier because they're like, man, let's get more of this protein happening. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I reckon find that early starting threshold for your clients and work up from there. And, you know, don't let them feel discouraged because, you know, when you're changing nutritional behaviors with clients, there is a, a major psychological component to it, which most people are not considering. And that is like everyone's relationship with food is different. And how you have a relationship with vegetables and meat could be very different to other people. You know, some people grew up in family situations where food was like punishment or food was reward or they didn't have access to certain foods so i guess it's how some people feel when they go to um a cuisine uh, an international cuisine that they've never had before and they think oh this is gross i'm not going to eat this mm. food that's how some people feel about broccoli that's how some people just feel about chicken you know so you kind of have to be really good at adapting you know, your language and your prescriptions to clients based off their considerations. And I think that's really starts with asking a lot of questions. The yep. best nutrition consultations, the best nutritionists, dietitians, they ask the most amount of questions possible to see what they're dealing with. I think, you know, some interesting ones that like I didn't expect is you get some people that, you know, they, they have like background health concerns around the amount of protein that you want to eat. Like they'll look at that amount of protein and they'll be like, man, are you going to get like some sort of cancer? Oh yeah, kidney disease. From like yeah. eating that amount of protein. Like this is like they, they don't maybe explicitly say, but it's like in the back of their head and they'll bring it up 1.2. Like I don't want to like, you know, have problems like, cause it's like too much protein and it's, it's likely not too much for them, but just compared to where they've been. Um, or even they could have like an ethical thing as well. Like, hey, is it actually a good thing to eat like an entire half a chicken? You know, that just like, it just seems like greedy or like unethical to be eating that much of actual animals. So there could be some background just beliefs they have that are potentially holding them back as well from taking the prescriptions that like explains to you why you're frustrating and getting results. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, next question. Fabiot93, how do you brace your core properly? Because he's always losing tightness in bent over rows. Yeah, cool. So this is, well, I mean, we can talk specifically about the bent over row, but just more, more generally when it comes to bracing your core, it is an important skill that all anyone who lives in the gym um, needs to learn. And it's not simple, it's not easy, and it takes a lot of practice, and it takes a lot of conscious awareness. But once you get it down, it is, you know, it, it is like breathing, quite yeah. literally. It's, it's quite easy to do. Um, 
there are so there are a few components uh when it comes to bracing your core that you need to consider so if you're sitting here listening to this one thing you can do is like push your hands um into your sides like you're gonna like tickle yourself and then i'm not asking you to do it i'm listening but now you're blocking me <laughs> you're blocking the demonstration yeah so you push your hands into your side and then you like press as if you're trying to do a poo so like you'll you'll feel your soft sides and then as you press as if you're going to do a poo you'll feel your um you'll feel like your core press out into your fingers that is the brace that you need to create by taking a breath in so do that again so push your hands into your side breathe in and you should feel that same tension that's created so that is basically your brace and what that is doing Oh my God, I've forgotten the name of the core muscle. But anyway, there's like multiple layers of core muscle. Your deepest core muscle, essentially, that is the one that is like protecting your spine and making sure. It's a TBA? Yeah, transverse Yeah, Raf, Raf with the uh, anatomy right there. But yeah, basically, once you once you take that breath in and that mus- musculature is like tense, it's stopping your spine from, from moving. And so like if you're under a heavy load, what you don't want is you don't want your spine moving under that load, right? Because it's just not strong enough and you can like damage the discs. So that's essentially what a brace does. It helps to um, keep the spine fixed. And that's what that muscle is involved in. Now, when most people take a breath, what they do is they lift their chest mm. and they like expand their, their upper lungs. Now, that, that does happen if you fill up with enough air. But ultimately, what's, what you need to be doing is, is pushing that belly out or at least you know, com- creating a lot of tension and compression around that belly. It can help to have a belt on to kind yeah. of learn how to do that. But you should learn how to do it without a belt first. Or even just a light belt. It gives you that, like, basically what you just demonstrated with your hands. gives you the same thing where you can breathe into the belt. I think as well, because I've experienced this with the bent over row, it is hard because you are staying in that position for such a long period of time. So it's kind of a new skill because you also need to learn how to, like, breathe in and out during it. Whereas it's a bit easier if you're just doing, like, one rep at a time on squats and deadlifts because you can brace, do your rep, breathe at the top, reset your brace which like what a lot of people get good at. And then they go to the bent over row and it's like, well, I have to like keep breathing because I'm doing 15 pretty heavy reps here and I've still got to maintain my tightness. So you might just be not very good at that. And when you're breathing on the bent over row, you're losing it. Um, it could also just be too heavy. In essence, it is too heavy because you don't know how to brace, but you know, the heavier it is, the harder this is to pull off. So, I mean, that's also the reason people use so many chest supported rows in the gym is because they just want to like train their back and not have to worry. Yeah. About the thing. I'm not saying they arrive. I'm just saying for longevity and you want to get heaps of reps in on your back, like, yeah, you're going to do some chest supported stuff. So you just don't need to worry about this and you can just like train your back. But you want to do obviously some sets like this so you can you can train this skill. Um, and it's good. It'll transfer to stuff like your deadlift and any other time you need a brace. You know, it is a great like full body exercise, but I, honestly, I fucking hate bent over rows. Man, I think some people love them. Some people hate them. I hate them. I think they're um, terrible exercise. Some people I think can just be really good at them. I do think there's like an element of like how people are built and there's some people that, that do them really strong backs and they can just maintain great position on them, um, even at, at you know some heavy weights. Uh, but a lot of people just do them really poorly. I just don't, I, I disagree, man. I don't think I've seen anyone at any level do extremely good form bent over rows at a heavy weight because there's like this threshold. The second it becomes heavy enough to be impressive and to like really stimulate strength work, your lower back goes. Like that's basically what I see happen. Someone puts 100 kilos on the bar. Yeah, they're rowing it pretty well, but then they're starting to swing their lower back or change the position of their torso, which changes the loading completely because it's like your lower back can't support the mm. tension in that position. So like, I don't think it's a good exercise at all for, for strength work. Look, as an overall like exercise, if you do really heavy rows and 
you kind of cheat the movement you're using a bit of momentum it's still a good full body exercise like you're doing it and you're like it's taxing you know like but in terms of just isolating and building pulling strength i just think there's way better exercise i think you're better off doing really heavy deadlifts with like a wide grip if you want to really strengthen the lat muscles and the grip and then doing some heavy chest supported rows or dumbbell rows where you can really focus on the proper pulling mechanics, the pulling position. I just feel like as soon as that exercise gets too heavy, you just get pulled out of position. And then you just alter your position so much with your back or you look, risk injuring yourself. I mean, I would love for someone to give me a good reason why it's a better exercise, but I mean, virtually don't do it with any of our clients because of the injury risk. Uh, I don't see really any of us as the staff doing it because we all pick better back exercises. And yeah, I think that um, you can get all the benefits from a bent over row from like such a different variety of exercise. And every time I see people doing bent over rows with ridiculous weights on the gram or on YouTube, it's the form is always dog shit. And like they're good, they're, they're people that have good exercise, good form in squats and good form in deadlifts and good form in bench press. They're people that care about their form. It's just almost impossible to execute great form at this exercise because the lower back is such a limiter. Yeah, I think, well, I don't think it's too hard if the weights are reasonable. I think it's because it's so easy to do really heavy weights poorly on the exercise mm. that most people just go like way beyond what they can. You know, they're throwing around 80, 90 kilos. If they did it with 40, they could do it pretty well. Um, yeah, could they isolate their lats better on a on a machine where they could rest? Of course they could. That's why they would also do that. Um, but I think kind of for people that, yeah, like need to get better at this, maybe even struggle sending their backs on deadlifts. It can be like an accessory exercise to get better at somewhere where they struggle. But I would agree if you walk into a regular gym, vast majority of the time everyone's going too heavy and it looks awful yeah and from a risk to reward perspective like yeah we never program it pretty much with our clients because it's like well you know we're not watching every single set so yeah so risk reward here let's let's leave it out yeah and i guess like my problem is yeah most people can only exercise the movement well somewhere between 30 to like 70 to 80 kilos at that point if you can do 80 really well you're pretty fucking strong yeah, but if you're doing 60, it's like, man, you may as well go grab a dumbbell and do like 30 kilo rows per arm. You'll get way more out of it, 35 kilos. So, anyway, I just don't, I just don't see a lot of value in the bent over row, to be honest. I think we got... Who who made it famous? It was Ronnie and it was Dorian, right? Well, Ronnie does it with 220 kilos. Um, but he, he, they, they also do them very differently. They would do more like the Dorian Yates style row. Yeah, so, like, they, so, they would actually protect their back a lot more. They would wear a belt and also their back would be very vertical. See, at that point, and I'm then, like, why? And the bar is almost more scraping up and down their thighs. Um, so it's quite different. And then uh, even if you go all the way to like the pen lay row, which a lot of weightlifters will do, that's also different because the weight's basically on the floor. Yeah. So they're not having to like maintain that position. Um, on the, So like just the classic bent over row. Yeah, it's not. It's generally not done very well. I, I think it's a dog shit exercise. Yeah, so he does it um, quite a lot more like Dorian. Yeah. It's also that is a lot. Of, also, that is so much weight. I also wouldn't really be going for Ronnie Coleman's form based <laughs> on how he's he's ended up his his um his skeleton has ended up yeah. in his joints and shit. So yeah, he looked good though. Yeah, maybe all his hip issues were because of bent over rows. Maybe we discovered maybe. why it wasn't the heavy squats. You know, that's a rows. pretty uh, that's another good exercise that I reckon that you have some of the same issues, but it's definitely um, easier. Is the T bar row? It's definitely easier on, on people's backs because of the, the position not nearly as hard as, as a bent over row so I just yeah I just good switch I just really don't see the point in doing it you're like putting an extremely heavy load away from your spine out in front of your spine like it just seems like and yeah it's an injury risk waiting to happen stop doing bent over rows if you take anything from this podcast alright is that the final question yep 
Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Again, if you haven't yet, make sure you send us a message with your questions in the DMs on Instagram at the My Muscle Project. And as always, we'll speak to you all next week.